William Willimon, who is probably one of my favorite preachers. I don't know if you've ever encountered him, but uh, he admitted uh, he hated the book of Proverbs. So he avoided it. He says, uh, reading all those little bits of advice is like taking a road trip with your mother-in-law. Uh, I have to say, to me, that sounds like an invitation to buckle up and hit the gas and go right into the book. Yes, please. But our passages, so our passages from Proverbs, but it is not, well, a series of Proverbs. Uh, it's not one of these, it's not the wisdom sayings. It's wisdom saying things. It's wisdom speaking, calling out. Uh, and the, the Hebrew word for wisdom is hachma. But it's worth noting that the, the version of the Bible that Jesus would have read, uh, that, you know, that, that they read in, in that uh, first century, is, wouldn't have been the Hebrew version. It would have been in Greek. And so they would not have read this passage with hakma in it. They would have had the Greek word. Um, and the Greek word, you, you may hear echoes of, uh, for the Greek word for wisdom is one we use in a word like uh, sophomore. Sophomore means a wise fool, right? The idea is like sophomores, they got a little bit of knowledge but they don't know how much they don't know. So, uh, so, but that comes from the word Sophia. So Jesus would have read Sophia. He would have read about Sophia calling. She is the master craftsperson executing the divine architectural plans at the dawn of creation. Now, it's an interesting question to ask. What do we make of Sophia? I mean, who is she? Are we talking about a someone? Or are we talking about a personified something? And it sounds a little bit different when we say Sophia as opposed to wisdom. Because we're used to hearing Sophia as a name, as something you capitalize. Well, our text here, when it refers to wisdom, doesn't capitalize it. Doesn't sound, it sounds like a concept, not a name. Uh, and so it, it, it gives the impression, well, all, all the writer is doing here is being poetic. Uh, the writer isn't talking about an actual person, an actual being. The writer is simply personifying a concept the way we do when we talk about Lady Liberty, right? Uh, I took a course in wisdom literature in, in seminary, and uh, Proverbs being uh, part of that. And I, so I was reading the book that was assigned to us in that course to see whether how it dealt with this, who this being was. And it's interesting that the commentary never really even got into that question. It appeared simply to assume that we're just dealing with personification. Um, and, Instead, it spends time examining various arguments regarding uh, source material. Uh, if you read comic, commentary, never get into somebody who is a source critic. It is so boring. All they do is try to figure out, okay, where did they, 
you know, they, they always assume none of, none of the stuff can be original. It has to have some source. Well, I mean, there's, it can be somewhat fruitful, uh, but by and large, it's a, a waste. Um, but, it, but here, it talks about their argument saying, ah, there are Canaanite passages where they talk about wisdom as though wisdom were a person. So maybe they're pulling from that. Oh, well, the Egyptians do that. Okay. The Greeks do that too. But then, the, anyway, and, and this commentary goes through all those things and just says, well, the connections here are sort of loose, but yeah, there may have been some influence there. Um, now, I think the Greeks in particular emphasized divine Sophia. Uh, now, regardless of whether they, those cultures understood Sophia as just a concept that had, you know, per personified concept or an actual being, doesn't necessarily tell us whether the Hebrews, when they do this, when they make Sophia call out, whether they understand Sophia as a being or just a poetic expression of a concept. You know, we have to understand it, we have to look at it in terms of its relationship, this passage's relationship to the scriptures as a whole, both the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament. All right. So I had said at that one part, did, did, part, did it sound vaguely familiar? I'm going to reread some of it just to, to have you think about it again. The Lord created me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of long ago, Ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. And then this part. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, I was beside him like a master worker, and I was his daily delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the human race. So if we, if, if listening to that, if we listen in sort of this direction, toward the beginning of Scripture, it, well, I think you, you can hear some of Genesis in there, right? This is about creation, about in the beginning. Um, now, depending on how you date Genesis versus Proverbs, it may be that Genesis is echoing Proverbs or Proverbs is echoing Genesis. It's another debate for another time. But we should also listen in this direction toward the New Testament. And when we do that, when we read those, that passage and listen toward the New Testament, we hear some reverberations from the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being, which uh, came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. Now, to be clear, John's Greek does not use the word Sophia. John says, when the word, word, is logos, that's the Greek word there, not Sophia. But word isn't the only way you can translate logos. It can be translated as 
reason. And there are times when it's translated as wisdom. Am I saying that this feminine master craftsperson who was with God in the beginning and did ordered creation, am I saying it's that that's who we're talking, that's who that's talking about? It's talking about Jesus? That Jesus is Sophia? Before I go further in the question, I want to say just a bit about my own sense of calling. I mean, there are lots of reasons I can give why, after resigning my former position, after all that pain involved, that I decided to return to this uh, vocation, to parish ministry. Part of why I did is because I feel like the church needs to change, and not, not to change its basic commitments, not to change its commitment to the gospel, to the authority of the scriptures. I feel the church needs to change uh, in order to reflect those commitments to the gospel, to the scriptures. Because for too long, the church's commitment to those things has been shaped to suit the interests of some at the exclusion of others. And honestly, uh, the people who shaped the church's commitment to those things tended to look like, like me. White, cisgendered males. Although, to be fair, they didn't always possess my godlike upper body strength. But, it, but they interpreted the gospel and the scriptures in ways that sort of secured power for people like me. And they've claimed that anyone that challenges their power does so because they lack their commitment to the scriptures and to the gospel. So, and that's not right. So that's why I felt called. But then you could say, well, if that's, if that's the basis of your calling, why should you go back in the ministry and take a position of power away from somebody who is, is not white, cisgendered, and male? And that's a fair point. What I would say is, you know, if only pastors who aren't cisgendered, straight males, raise the kinds of issues I think we're raising this morning, um, they're likely to be dismissed as just having some sort of personal agenda. You know, they're reading personal issues into the text. Uh, it's their own baggage, you know, and people tend to be a little suspicious. By and large, you know, it's straight, cisgendered white males that get to make their claims and say, I'm just being biblical. Uh, we get, you know, we get to take offense at the idea that our interpretation is informed by a personal agenda. You know, we're just standing behind the word of God. So anyway, so I'm sort of taking advantage of the fact that I have sort of a privileged position to say there's a connection. There is a connection between divine Sophia and divine Logos. The she in our uh, Proverbs text and the he in, our, in, the, in John's gospel. And I think it's important to emphasize that because right now, in many churches, these sorts of issues about gender and sexuality are tearing the church apart. My former denomination this week is deciding whether one can support marriage equality and still consider yourself a Christian. 
Uh, and the jury is still out as to whether that is the decision that they will make. And my guess is that they'll probably find some way to punt and not make a decision because they probably could see, you know, I mean, what's happening in the Methodist church over these, these issues. They probably want to avoid that. Uh, there's a pastor who, of a non-denominational church who lives, or well, his, I don't know where he lives, but his church is just up the street from us. I, we've met on an occasion, had some short conversation. Anyway, it just recently he tweeted, uh, he says, I've never shied away from addressing heresy, you know, false teaching, especially in regards to views, right? oh, ooh, here's the big one, in regards to views of gender, sexuality, or the nature of the gospel. He says, I stand firm on this, but I will never allow someone's biblical reading of spiritual gifts, women's role in the church, or the tithe to break fellowship. In other words, I'm not going to condemn anybody who doesn't agree with me on those things. I appreciate the fact that he's willing to accept that there are those who read the scriptures and come to a conclusion on uh, women's ordination different than the one he has. But I am somewhat amazed at where he draws the line at these, what he's central issues, gender, sexuality, and the nature of the gospel. Uh, he's as concerned that we have a prop, what he sees as a proper view of gender and sexuality as a proper understanding of the gospel. And, and spoiler alert, of course, uh, you know, he, he opposes same-sex marriages and the notion of being trans and so forth. So it's a pretty rigid uh, understanding of these things. I don't know that, I mean, a verse like this suggests that we ought to be careful how rigidly we understand things. And I'm not, and I'm not suggesting we start calling Jesus daughter of God or saying, uh, Sophia loves me, this I know. But I am saying, all right, settle down a bit, Pastor. If these issues of gender and sexuality were that important, don't you think the Holy Spirit would have intervened as John was writing the prologue to his gospel? Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> uh, you know, let's, let's not reference Proverbs. I mean, let's, let's just say that's poetic. You know, uh, we don't want to give people the wrong impression. I mean, Jesus is all dude, all right? No. At the very least, a passage like this, along with numerous others which affirm, you know, provide feminine imagery for God, suggests that God is not as preoccupied with rigid notions of gender as we are. And that's not to suggest that, oh, are you saying anything goes? No, I'm not saying anything goes. Uh, I don't say anything goes in terms of our language for God or, or our language for one another, but I, but I do reject the idea that there's only two options, straightforward and obvious or chaos and absolute confusion. Oh, there's got to be a conversation. Anyway, which brings us to our gospel reading. And it, it is from John, a different part of John. It's part of this larger discourse in which Jesus talks about his departure. And here he starts by saying his departure means he can't tell them all that they need to hear. And the emphasis isn't on, you know, he has so much to say that he can't move his lips fast enough to get it all in in the time allotted. No, he's saying, I, I still have many things to say to you but you cannot bear them now. They need some time. They gotta be prepared to hear it. 
Some things have to happen so that when they're told, they can hear it, they can get it. And he's saying they'll hear it from the Holy Spirit. Now, we are never told specifically, oh, this is the thing Jesus said you couldn't bear to hear. But it's safe to assume that a large part of what Jesus is referring to here is the fact that the kingdom is far more inclusive than they ever could have imagined. There's evidence of this in the book of Acts and how the disciples do sort of struggle to bear this, to understand this, to make sense of it. You know, before Peter is willing to go into the home of uh, Cornelius, the Roman centurion, now he, he's given this vision uh, that, that instructs him, and he rejects it. So he's given it again, and he dismisses it. He's got to be given the thing three times before it, he can bear the idea that he is to go into the home of this Gentile. And the fact is, it's actually not one of the 12 disciples that really is the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul's got to be brought in. That's Paul's gig. You know, it's Paul who will say, there's no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. It's Paul who's going to talk about how the Spirit overrides every other consideration. Because an evidence of the Holy Spirit is not found in how you perform gender or who you're attracted to. Evidence of the Spirit's presence is found in what Paul refers to as Fruit, when the seed of the Spirit is planted within someone, male, female, Jew, Greek, you know, evidence of that, here's what we should expect to see. We should expect to see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, I don't know how relevant these issues feel to you. They may not feel relevant at all. Um, maybe you don't know anyone who finds they don't fit the traditional norms uh, in terms of their attractions or their identity. I, I recall having said that to someone at some point and their response was, well, you know, you may know a lot more than you think you do, but they just haven't felt safe to tell you. Oh, that stung. That stung a bit. You know, th th this idea that there was something they might say, but I could not bear it. Or at least they feared I could not bear it. You know, I was told, uh, someone in this congregation, uh, by someone in this congregation, that this church has a reputation in town as being the gay church. I don't know if that's something that you've heard. Um, I, I, it's very interesting. I suspect that probably has to do with the reputation of the UCC in general, more than this church specifically. Uh, but I, I don't think that that was said to flatter this church. I, I think somebody 
probably said that, uh, to shame this church. You know, uh, what would we have to be ashamed of? Ashamed of being a church that says there's no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male, female, gay, straight, cis cisgendered or trans, that, that, that there is here only a community determined to see one another as gathered by the Spirit. And we are here, that, that this is a community that where you are is as to bear fruit of the Spirit. Everything else, secondary. Now that, you know, I, I, I have no idea. I don't know how big a uh, LGBTQ plus community there is around here. Um, and I'm not, I'm not suggesting that we've done anything to prove ourselves other, one way or the other. I mean, there's, but you know, I, when we think about who we are, what does it mean to say who we are uh, as a people? What does it mean to extend that hospitality? I'd say, I think we're doing, we'd be doing something right. We're doing something right if people who might be afraid to disclose who they are to their friends and their family know that they have a safe space here. If they knew that, they identified themselves in some way that they would be met with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's nothing to be ashamed of in that. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.